My name is uh, John Paul Watson, or JP, as many uh, know me. Feel free to call me either, uh, either one of those. And um, my family and I moved out here a little bit over a year and a half ago to uh, plan a church uh, in, the, in the Denver area, and we're super excited uh, to be here and to be here at Deer Creek and to have the opportunity to get to know people at Deer Creek, to build relationships, and then to have the opportunity to be sent out by this uh, incredibly generous church uh, to plant a, a new church in the Denver metro area. And I'd love to talk to you about that uh, after the service and in a few weeks. I'm around, so I'd love to talk to you about that at any point, uh, any point in time. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a look uh, at Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, verses 3 through 14, and uh, Ephesians, uh, in the Bible, it's a New Testament um, letter, letter that this guy named Paul wrote to this church in the first century, a church uh, in, uh, in Ephesus. And what we're going to take a look at this morning is like the biggest possible picture sense of the world and how God has set up the world uh, with these verses. So, I say that as a little bit of a disclaimer because it's going to be impossible for me to tackle everything that's in these verses, um, but we're going to try and wrap our heads around it. But I would love to talk to you afterwards if you have questions about anything um, that, are in, that are in these verses. But let's hear this, uh, God's word for us uh, this morning. This is actually one long sentence in the original language. We have it split up into numerous sentences, but this is actually one singular uh, sentence. So grammarians... Just, just hang in there. Um, but this is God's word for us this morning. And here's what I want us to hear. I want you and me to hear God's love for us in this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Father, uh, you are the kind of God that loves us and cares for us and loves us so much that you want to and you desire to communicate with us, to commune with us, to be with us, and you have given us your word to do that. And so as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts, that this grace that we just read of would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see how wonderful Jesus is. And in whatever way you need to do that, Holy Spirit, this morning, in whatever way 
that you need to do that, that you need to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your grace. Have your way with us. Have your way with us this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Several years ago, Carrie and I, uh, we began our uh, little family that's now four children who are teenagers down to six years old in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, which is where we lived for almost four years. And I went to seminary there to Covenant Theological Seminary. And St. Louis, Missouri was actually a really great place to live and to begin building a family because it was incredibly affordable. And one of the reasons that it was affordable is because the Anheuser-Busch family lived there. And the Anheuser-Busch family foot the bill for all kinds of incredible things, like the zoo. You know how we have to pay for the zoo here in Denver? And it's like an arm and a leg. In St. Louis, you don't have to pay for it. Anheuser-Busch pays for it. The art museum was that way. The history museum was that way. There were so many things that were free to families, which was really, really great because we were in seminary and we were dirt poor with other seminarians. And so we availed ourselves of as much of that as we could. And I loved going to the art museum. Now, disclaimer, I'm not myself an artist. As a matter of fact, those of you who are in here, if you're age five or above, I can pretty much guarantee you, you can draw better than I can. But I really enjoyed art. And I think part of it is because I'm not any good at it. And so I loved going to the art museum. And there were a couple of pictures slash paintings that were at the St. Louis Art Museum that really stuck out to me in my time there. One of those was a drawing by a guy named Winslow Homer called The Perils of the Sea. And I've actually got it up here for you. So you can kind of see what this looks like. Now, to give you an idea, though, that, um, that picture is actually about the size of this Bible. Okay? So it's really, really, really small. And it's a, it's a drawing that's done in pencil. And when you are right up on top of that, like as close, like right here you can see every little stroke of that pencil. And you can see how incredibly gifted he was as an, as an artist because it looked as if like these strokes were coming off of the page. They, were, they, they, they had a silveriness to it that you felt like you were like right there in the midst of these two ladies and these men sitting right at the edge of the sea as the storm was coming in. is incredibly and intentionally personal. And you felt that. As you, were, as you were looking at it. So that was one of my favorite drawings at the St. Louis Art Museum. And the reason that it was so, that, that, that it, I think that it moved me so is because it felt so intentional and so personal. The other thing that I got to see at the, at the St. Louis Art Museum while we were there is uh, Monet's water lilies came through St. Louis while we were there. And you can kind of see this right here. Now this, Monet's Water Lilies, is actually a compilation of a whole bunch of different paintings that he did. And there are multiple, multiple panels of it. These are just three of those panels. Um, And what he did is he looked in this pond and he looked at this singular space and he blew it up. Kind of the opposite of what we often do when when we see art. We take something big and make it small. He went the other way with it. That's what's so amazing about it. But I remember being, being in the St. Louis Art Museum, looking at, this, at, at these panels up close, kind of like I was with the Winslow Homer drawing, and looking at it and being like, I don't get it. I don't see it. And there was a young woman who was there who was an artist, and she was painting some of these. And so I walked up to her, and I said, look, I know that I'm supposed to be, like, totally floored by this thing right here. But 
I don't see it. Can you help me? Can you help me see it? And she looked at me and she said, come with me. And she got up from her seat and the water lilies were like at the back of the wall and it was in one room and then there was an opening in another room the same size on the other end of the building. And she walked me all the way through to the back of that room and then she said, stand right here. And she said, now, look at it. And it hit me. I had to get away from it to see the big picture of what was going on, to see how full and how flourishing that painting really, really was. So I had to step back from it. When Ephesians 1, Paul takes both of those ideas of the intentionally personal, close up, and the big picture of the fully flourishing, and he puts it into a singular sentence. And what Paul is doing for us is he's showing us God's plan. That's not actually my title. Many pastors have used that title for this sermon in this passage, is God's plan. But what we see that Paul shows us about God's plan is that it is intentionally personal and it's fully flourishing. So that's how we're going to think about God's plan together is through those two ideas. So let's look at this idea of being intentionally personal. The first thing that you notice as you read through this passage is how completely God-centered it is. It's very personal. God is personally acting. Every single action is intentionally done by God for us and to us. In verse 4, we see that we are chosen by God in Jesus. God chose. And this is before the foundations of the world, before he ever even spoke creation into existence. That means that God didn't look at you and me and say, oh man, that person will be really useful for me. That's not how God did it. God chose us. And that's not something that's new. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, we see very early on in the scriptures that God tells his people, the Israelites, this. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. One of my seminary classmates about that passage, um, she said, God didn't choose you because you were cute. Like, that wasn't it. That's what he's telling Israel. It's not because you were awesome, not because you were great. God didn't choose us because we were so awesome. And he looked at us and said, oh man, that person will be really, really useful for, for, for me. No, God chose because he loves because he loves you, because he loves me. Paul is keying in on this reality. You and I were made by God. We owe our entire existence to him. God chose us. He set his love on us. And that tells us something about our relationship with God. It tells us that our relationship with God doesn't begin with us. It begins with him, what he has done, how God acts on us out of his love for us, and that should be profoundly comforting to us. This should be a very, very comforting thing to us, because I don't know about you, oftentimes when I think about the idea of choosing, it's actually rooted in rejection. 
As I think about being in elementary school and on the playground and everybody's playing kickball and I'm the guy who's standing there and is it me or is it him? This is the last one. Who's it going to be? Ah, little JP. He's the last one to get chosen. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm sitting here 39. I still think about that. Like, we still do. Those things shape us. For me, choosing is often rooted in rejection. Maybe that's for you too. Maybe you've been passed over for a promotion at work that you really thought. Like you really thought that was yours, that you were going to get that. Maybe you applied to colleges that you really, really, really wanted, but you didn't get in. You see, God's different than that. God says, I love you because I love you. I chose you because of my love for you. It is intentionally personal, and it should be incredibly comforting to us. But there's more to it as well, too. Verses 4 and 7, this intentionally personal plan that God has, also tells us that he makes us holy, blameless, and forgiven. That God forgives us through Jesus' blood. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 7. Because of what Jesus has done. Through Jesus' blood we have forgiveness. God is the one who makes us holy and blameless in Jesus. This is incredibly god centered here. It is a decided action that is fully focused on what God has done in his love. And that tells us actually something about ourselves. If God is the one who makes us holy and blameless and forgiven, that tells us that we're actually blameworthy. We're worthy of blame. We're guilty. But of what? Well, we're guilty of not choosing God. We're guilty of choosing self over choosing God. And that takes us all the way back to creation. It takes us all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve and God made them, made them in his image to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to exercise stewardship and dominion over everything. He walked in the garden with them. He wanted to be with them. And what did Adam and Eve do? They chose self. They rejected God and chose self. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And one of the things that a pastor says about this, pastor says that this choosing of self, what it is, is called sin. It's what the Bible calls sin. And so we can kind of think about sin that way as choosing self above the one who made us, the one whom we owe our existence to. And this pastor says that what sin does is sin shrinks our imaginations. That sin only allows us to see life through the lens of self. We lose God's perspective. What sin does is it takes a hold of our hearts and our minds, and we only then have the space to consider self. But what God does is God opens our hearts. God opens our minds to see self the way that we really are that we're guilty of rejecting him. And that means that God has to act on us. He has to be the one who acts on us, for us, and to us to make us not guilty, to make us blameless, to make us holy and set apart, to make us forgiven. Something has to come from outside of self and get into us and make us holy and blameless and forgiven. That's exactly what Jesus does. 
Jesus comes from outside of creation. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. What does he do? He comes into it. And he actually becomes mine and yours rejection of God, our sin, even though he never knew sin. He never did any of that. He just took it for us to bring us life and to get us back into this relationship with God, to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see beyond self and to see this God who is so good and so loving and so gracious to us. And that's not abstract. That's not an abstract thing. That's an incredibly personal thing. Jesus really, actually, and truly, and intentionally came to give himself for us. It's very, very, very real. And it doesn't stop there. There's a third thing about this intentionally personal plan that God has for us. And we see that in verse 5, where Paul says that we were predestined for adoption. Predestined for adoption in Jesus, to be in God's family. Again, you can't get away from it. It's it's so God-centered here. It's so God-centered, and it's incredibly relational. It's incredibly relational because what God is telling us by telling us that we are predestined for adoption is he's telling us personally, your life is not random. My life is not random. We have a destination that is a God-set destination that is within his boundaries. And what that destination is, is adoption in Jesus. That you and I become sons and daughters of the living God. That we're in God's family. That we belong. That we're protected, that we're safe, that we're loved unconditionally. And the only way that I can even begin to wrap my mind around this is to think as a parent about my own children. And to know that when they came to us in that delivery room, I just loved them. They hadn't done anything. Just loved them. Like you, just, you looked at them and you said, yep, I would, I, I would die for that child. That's the only way that I can get there. The way that we see our children, the way that we look at them and they have their own unique little personalities and we look at them and we say, oh my goodness, how glorious is that? That's how God sees you. That's how God sees me. That is how he looks at us. He looks at us and he sees all of the unique things that he has built into us. And he says, oh, they are mine. I love them so much. And I say that recognizing that some of us here, and maybe even many of us here, have had bad experiences with our parents. That it hasn't been good. And maybe even some of us here have had incredibly terrible experiences with our parents. And I also stand up here, and if I'm honest, I'm not perfect as a parent either. And none of us are. I'm guilty myself of being a terrible parent. But deep down, we, we know how it is that we're supposed to be loved and to love. It's like it's embedded on us because we bear God's image in his world. And that is how God loves you and me in Jesus. So parents, when we're guilty of messing it up, repent to your children. We have to. 
Own it. Confess it. Say it out loud. Show them that they have a heavenly father who always loves them perfectly in Jesus. And as Tim said last week, you got to take that in for yourself. That's where parenting and grace starts is recognizing and realizing how needy we are. How we need to be brought into the family. How we need to be adopted in Jesus, sons and daughters of the living God. And Paul sets this intentionally personal plan of God in verse 7 when he tells us that it is in redemption through Jesus' blood. That you and I are chosen, forgiven, holy, blameless, predestined for adoption in redemption in Jesus' blood. That Jesus rescues us from a life of sin and bent on self. Jesus rescues us from the myopathy to only see life through the lens of self. And he opens us up. And Paul says, what makes all that happen is in verse 7. And it's grace. It's this idea of grace. God acts. God pursues. God changes. God rescues. God saves. God forgives. God makes us holy and blameless in grace. You see, God refuses to let us think that our relationship with him is based on anything other than grace, which is this free gift that we just get. We didn't do anything to get it. God just gives it to us because he loves us. He is the one who set his love upon us. And what that grace does... That grace brings us redemption in Jesus. That grace is what makes us chosen and forgiven, holy and blameless, predestined and adopted, redeemed in grace. And Paul says in verse 7 that it is a grace that is according to grace, or appointed is the idea here, placed upon, on top of, and that we are lavished in it, that he lavishes his grace on us. When I was in the eighth grade, I went with uh, a group of friends and my, and my dad and some other adults to hike a section of the Appalachian Trail that started in the northern part of Georgia and then went into Tennessee and ended into, into North Carolina. And we were going to do it over the course of three days. And we were going to cover, I think it was like 20, uh, 24 miles in, uh, over the course of three days. And we got there, and we got on the trail, and it was beautiful. It was incredible. I love the Appalachian Mountains. I love the Rockies, too. I love every mountain. That's part of the reason I wanted to live near mountains. Um, And so we're hiking, and it's wonderful, but it's also a lot of switchbacks, so it's really, really, really hard. We get into day two, and we start rolling, and we start going, and then we start seeing these dark clouds that are coming in. And the next thing we know, we're starting to get rained on. But we're like, it's okay we're only a mile from our next campsite, so we're going to be all right. And then we come to our next campsite, or to, to break off on the trail to go to the campsite, and it's closed. That section of closed is, due, uh, is closed due to bear activity. And the only way around it is to actually go back and then back around, and then the bottom just falls out. And we are getting soaked to the bone. And we realize, like, there's no way we're going to be able to sleep in this. And there's actually nowhere for us to sleep. And so we ended up on day two hiking 21 miles in the soaking rain. Like, it it is just, it's like we're wearing it, you know. And we come out of the woods and all of 
the adults are back because they can't hang with us, you know, um, which is where I would be right now. But we come out of the woods and everything, and we are just drenched. We're soaked to the bone. It's like we're wearing this, uh, this water, and these sweet people uh, were, were there, and they were in their camper, and they are watching these, you know, 14- and 15-year-old boys come out of there, and we're just coming out of everything, you know? Like, we're just trying to find any piece of dry clothing that we can get because we are so, so, so soaked to the bone, and they're offering us hot chocolate. They were really, really sweet cared for us and took care of us and everything. But that is, that is how Paul is talking about grace here. We are soaked to the bone in grace. It's like we're wearing it. That is how God lavishes his grace on us. We are covered in it. It is overflowing on us. One pastor says about this grace that God lavishes on us, this gift that he gives us in his love, it's like we've fallen off of a waterfall and and we just keep going. And we keep going and there's no end in sight. That's how big God's grace is. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. But man, don't we fight grace? (laughs) I fight grace. Honestly, grace is hard to swallow for me. Oftentimes, it's, it's, a, it's difficult because I internally feel the pressure to prove myself, to prove my, my worth. And I even embrace that at times. Like, I got to prove myself. I have to prove my worth. I have to earn my place. And I feel the weight of that. And when I'm in that mode of I've got to prove myself, you know what I do? I make others have to prove themselves to me too. And we get this way. I get that way with my kids. Kids, you're sitting in here and maybe that's how you feel like it is with mom and dad. I know my kids would say certainly at times that's the case. And parents, maybe that is what we're looking for at times. Right? Do you feel this way at work? Is that actually how work actually operates for you? You got to prove yourself again, and you got to prove yourself again, and you got to prove yourself again. And then we so easily, we're so good at telling ourselves this too. That this is how our lives are defined. This is how this is how purpose and meaning and worth is defined is that I prove myself. It's what I bring to the table. And I got to be honest with you, that's even a temptation for me standing up here right now. It's certainly a temptation as I think about planning a church. I got to prove myself. I wear that instead of wearing grace. It's hard. I fight grace. We fight grace. But what God does in his love is he sends us grace. And what grace does is grace invades us. And it totally upends the prove yourself life. Grace comes in and it's willing to crush our dreams of the self-made life to crush our dreams of our worth being in what we brought to the table, to crush our dreams of proving ourselves and proving our worth. And it brings us to our knees to see that our worth is not in our ability to prove ourselves, but in something outside of us that has gotten into us and that gets into us and comes in and declares, mine, mine, you belong to me. You are predestined in love, chosen, forgiven, holy, blameless, not because we proved ourselves, not because of that at all. 
not because of what we brought to the table, but actually in spite of it. And God loves us so much that he doesn't ignore that stuff, fully acknowledging you've tried to live life built around self. I've tried to live life built around self, but God in his grace that overflows and lavishes and says it doesn't work. It's not going to. It'll keep asking more. It'll always demand that you prove yourself over and over and over again. But I do not work that way. Grace invades and opens us up to receive Jesus. To rest in Jesus who took our place and became our sin yet without ever sinning. Without ever looking at his life through the lens of self. Without ever rejecting God but only living in communion with the Heavenly Father. And if you're here this morning and you're just trying to make heads and tails of Jesus and this whole Christian thing, you're not exactly sure what to think about all of it. My guess is you do think about life about proving yourself again and again and again. I don't think any of us escapes any of this. And my question would be, how's that going? How's that working for you? And I would say, grace. God is bidding you come. Lay it down. Lay down your life around proving self and get into Jesus who took your place and instead gives you his righteousness, his goodness, his love placed upon you in grace. And Paul says, look, we're soaked in this grace individually, but we're soaked in it collectively too. That we actually get to do this thing together. That it's not just me and Jesus or just you and Jesus, but it's us together. Because Jesus came for a people, for his church, and grace overflows from us to one another. And we get to come alongside each other and remind each other what is true about us in Jesus. We get to treat each other the way that God treats us as family Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, being in that family. And grace is a linchpin in all of this. And it actually shows us the other side of God's plan. You see, because God's plan is intentionally personal, it's also fully flourishing. Look back with me at verses 9 through 10. That in Jesus, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, what grace does is grace makes known to us the mystery of God's will, which is fully and finally in Jesus. Grace makes known to us God's plan, and that plan is uniting all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Think of it like this. Everything in your life, everything in my life is moving towards Jesus. We are moving towards Jesus. And this idea of uniting is an idea of like gathering together, collecting together, summing up, putting everything in its right place. Parents, I don't know how many of you have younger kids who love Legos, but I have, I have four children who love Legos. My boys really, really love Legos. And Legos find their way all over the floor in my house. I don't know about you, 
And I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure when Legos are on the floor in my house, it feels like they're from the devil. Um, but as you walk around and you hit one of those Lego pieces and you say the things that you, you're probably not supposed to say, and it hurts so bad, and it's so, so, so terrible, and everything is out of place, and everything's out of whack, and everything's messed up. Sometimes it feels like life is that way. But then you say, hey, 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 here's what we're going to do. We need to gather together all of the Legos, and all the Legos need to be put back in their bin and back in their place, back where they're supposed to be, and then life can go on wonderfully and beautifully. That's what Jesus is doing in uniting all things. It's like putting all the Legos back where they belong. That's what is happening. And, and, and a pastor and, and professor and theologian, a guy named John Stott, says this about this whole uniting thing. He says that what's happening here is that this is when time merges into eternity again. I didn't read the full thing. God's plan for the fullness of times, when time merges into eternity again, is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, what what he's saying there is that what we have here is it gives us an echo from eternity past all the way into eternity future that shoots through our here and now to the gathering up, the summing up, the collecting up, the putting in the right place of all things, even creation itself. It gives us a cosmic vision of God's fully flourishing plan. And that bears importance on our present reality, on our here and our now. It shows us that as we follow Jesus and as we live in light of what he has done for us in his life, in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, what we become are like these reflective signposts of his work from eternity past into eternity future. It's like we become these magnifiers so that people see Jesus and how beautiful and believable and wonderful he is. From creation to our sin and rebellion to the redemption that he has purchased through his blood on the cross all the way into a new heavens and a new earth. What the Bible calls glory. That we become these reflective signposts. But what's that actually look like? Well, I got two quick things for us. The first thing is this, what that actually looks like is it looks like us pushing back on sin and brokenness in the world. Pushing back on the effects of rebellion in the world. So here's something practical to that. If you're here and you're involved in the medical field, when you meet with a patient and something is wrong and you get the opportunity to help diagnose that or care for them, you even, maybe if you're a physician, you get the opportunity to see that something is not right and it needs to be made right, and you can actually help do that, you're pushing back. You're pushing back on the effects of sin and brokenness in the world. If you're here and you're a teacher, you are highlighting and magnifying the reality that we bear God's image in his world, which means that we were created to learn. We were created to grow. We were created to to live into the reality of how God has made us, to live into the reality of how much God loves us in Jesus If you're here and you're involved in the legal system in any way, whether you're in law enforcement or whether you practice law, you get these opportunities to push back on sin and the effects of sin in the world. You get the opportunity to play a role in making something that is wrong right. 
Let's bring it into the home. Mom and dad, every time, every time that we are willing to enter into our children's sin struggles and our own sin struggles, we're pushing back. We are living in light of this uniting of all things that God is doing. We are reminding ourselves, we're reminding our children that that's not who we are in Jesus. That we don't live for self. We don't treat each other in meanness and anger and contempt. But we treat each other the way God has treated us in Jesus. And kindness and love and gentleness, generosity and charity. If you're here this morning and you volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center, every single time you get to sit down with one of those young moms who is so desperate when she comes in there and so afraid of the judgment that she might get in coming in there, and you get to sit down and you get to hear her story, and you get to hear about this baby that's growing inside of her and watch her struggle through what does all this mean, you get the opportunity to remind her that that little person inside of her is an image bearer of God, and she is too. And God offers grace. God offers forgiveness in Jesus through his blood. A number of years ago, shortly after our oldest was born, Lucy, we got a call from Carrie's granddad, not from her granddad, from her dad, saying their granddad was in the hospital. And um, I'd love to talk to you about Carrie's grandparents more. I hope one day that, that our marriage looks like theirs. Uh, but we flew from St. Louis to, uh, to Noonan, Georgia, to Atlanta, around Atlanta, Georgia. And Carrie's granddad was in the hospital. And it was really looking like, like he's, not, he's not coming out. And, um, and Carrie's dad asked me and her granddad asked me if I would come back and I would sit down and read some scripture with him. Um, and with our families there, I got to sit down with Carrie's dad and open the Bible up to the book of Revelation. And Revelation chapter 21 where God tells us that he will bring heaven to earth and he will wipe every tear away from our eyes and death will be no more and mourning will be no more because the former things will have passed away and it will only be life to come. And I got to sit there with him on his deathbed and read that to him. That is proclaiming the uniting of all things in Jesus that is to come. When we get to sit on the deathbeds of our loved ones and read scripture to them and sing hymns with them, we are pushing back on sin and its effects and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is coming and he's going to make all things new and it will be fully flourishing. The second thing is, the second way that we actually live in light of this fully flourishing, the uniting of all things is the power of forgiveness. The power of forgiveness. Because here's what's true. Every single one of us in this room has been wronged. And every single one of this in, in, in this room has done wrong to others. And Jesus says that the uniting of all things looks like not being defined by our wrongs or the wrongs that have been done to us, but being defined by him the one who never did anything wrong, but became all of that wrong for us and in exchange gave us his perfect life, perfect life, forgiveness that he purchased in his blood on the cross. And what this means is that we can own our sin. We can name it. We can own our sin. 
that we don't have to live in fear of being defined by that, but we get to live in the confidence of Jesus and his forgiveness, that we can forgive incredible wrongs and be forgiven incredible wrongs. And so if you're out there and you're feeling like, man, I said something so horrible, there's no way that could ever be taken back. No way that we'll ever get past this. So I'm just going to act like it didn't happen. No. Own it. You have a Savior who has died for you, who's given himself for you. There is power in forgiveness that we get to operate knowing that everything is moving towards Jesus, that there is nothing that God is not using in your life and in my life to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us. All of the wrongs that we have done, all of the wrongs that have been done to us will be redeemed in the merging of time and eternity again when Jesus unites all things in heaven and earth. You see, God's plan is intentionally personal and it is fully flourishing. And that's actually what brings us to this table that we have here this morning, which is a reminder to us that our relationship with God does not start with us, but with him and what he has done in Jesus and acting on us. That's what this table pictures because see, here's the deal. This isn't a meal that we came up with. This isn't a table that we set. This is a table that Jesus sets. And he invites us here as a part of the family of God. So on the night that Jesus was with his disciples celebrating the Passover, the night that he was actually betrayed by one of his own friends, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat and remember And in the same way, the Lord Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink of it, all of you. As often as we come to this table and we take of this meal that Jesus has set up for us, what we're doing is we're proclaiming Jesus' death until what? He comes again and unites all things things in heaven and things on earth.